When we think of our life with the Messiah, what, what comes to mind? Well, we should recognize that he is, he is our life. Without him, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have the foretaste of, of the blessings. We have fellowship. We have just the joy, the, a heart that loves the scripture. All because of Messiah? What's that? All because of Messiah? All because of Messiah. Yeshua, Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, yo. It's Wednesday, January 9th, 2019. This is Messiah Matters number 248. Sugar free for nine days and feeling great. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, a man that could never remember to prepare an intro, so I'll just do it for him. I had it. Go I'm for it. Drinking cool water from a torresource.com mug. <laughs> Dude, I am representing the day. Look at this. <clears throat> so am I. Tor Resource Institute started uh, winter quarter 2019 started. Yes, we see your mug. Thank you. I was there. Yesterday. Boom. Look at that. Dude, <clears throat> you got to hook me up representing the school and if you if you're not if you're not signed up for classes what are you doing dude you got to hook me up with one of those mugs i can do that check this out everybody uh rob and i have been scheming behind the scenes scheming behind the scenes so we've decided to add another stop on the mm, tour the messiah matters tour and uh we're gonna i'm i'm going over to to spokane so we're trying to hook it up so that uh, so here's what happened. Beit Hillel in Tacoma asked if we could if we could come and start. That'll the tour. probably be our first one. That'll probably be our first one. So they want to fly Rob over, which is awesome because they'll fly they'll fly Rob over and we'll have a great time here in Tacoma, which is awesome. The funny thing is 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 Rob said to me, um, you know, is it kind of going to be like uh, Yeshua saying that. Uh, uh, a prophet isn't accepted in his own home. Like people, people at Beta Hillel are like, wait, isn't that Caleb? Wait, what's he doing up there? Um, we know you. We know you. But uh, with that said, then I'm my family is going over to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, little vacation with a with a couple of a couple of it's great a nice little, folks. Nice little town, lake town. Yeah, you know, I don't. To be honest with you, I don't think I've ever actually gone into Coeur d'Alene like. Coeur d'Alene proper. I've been on the lake with you, right? We we drove we a boat. We got to hook you up, man, while you're over here. I know. We drove a boat. We went to a we went to Spring some hippie dippy uh, uh, produce store. It was great, actually. I love it. Hippie produce. Yeah, it was it was like a Whole Foods, but you know, it didn't cost nearly as much, and it was even better. <laughs> <laughs> um, Patchouli wafting through the aisles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, somebody, Joshua asks, when can we start signing up for the spring quarter? That'll actually happen probably four weeks from now, maybe a month. Um, so, yeah, but uh, you and can still. That, wow, that's a good question, but I, I don't have a clue because we're just start. This is day two of, of winter quarter. You can still sign up for winter quarter, by the way. You have until uh, next Monday, I believe, to sign up for winter quarter. So if you want to, TorahResource.com, go to Institute. Find the classes, 
We got a couple of really Three good ones. classes that I'm doing. Well, one is probably unless you've had Greek, you wouldn't be able to jump in because it's it's assuming you already had the first quarter. But the other two classes are standalone that I'm doing. Studies in the Torah. Yes, which is, which is a good one. Pretty reading. In, well, the other two classes are what we call reading intensive. One is introduction to rabbinic literature. And the other is studies in the Torah. Adam's in the chat room. We should ask Adam, what do you think, man? When we So um, Adam, Adam is my... One of my cohorts uh, going to uh, Coeur d'Alene. We're going to meet in Coeur d'Alene. What do you think? Should we uh, go, should we go to to? Uh, I haven't even brought it up to him. <laughs> should we go to Heart of Messiah on Arab Shabbat and uh, do a mm tour? Well, we'll wait and see what he says. I'm imagining Caleb with your electric cello and maybe with a couple effects pedals. I I think that would. I mean, what else would we do? That's what I'm thinking. It just seems appropriate all the way around. Uh, and Adam says, yes, please. Uh, and, oh, man, look at this. Uh, Mike's on top of it. Uh, you know, our uh, student services now being handled by Mar- Mike. He says spring quarter registration around February 18th is when we will start registration. Um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, that as well. Anyway, sign up for classes. I want to thank uh, our producers real quick and uh, say thank you so much for uh, being our producers. Here are our producers' names for anyone who uh, wants to know who produces this show. Um, and you can become a producer. Go to TorahResource.com and hover over Media. Go down to Messiah Matters and something pops out that says Producer. Click on that. You get all the information there. And That's a mm-p. Mm, Yeah, mm-p. That's right. You're going to be a mm-p. By the way, we got another inside joke that I don't think a lot of people know, <laughs> but we got another one that we're going to turn into a shirt for oh, this yeah. show, and all it says is and, first. And we got we didn't invent it. We've, we did not we invent it. It's out there <laughs> first, dude. There's that only only like a couple of people in the chat room are going to know what in the world they're talking about. First, but first, it's it, when we open up the well, actually, I don't have it open. But it's a shout out to like, Derek Pauly. Derek was the first, I think. He was the first it. to say first. Yes. Yeah, and then basically you just put first, meaning I'm here first, and then today we had someone else do it. Well, first. we've had like three other people that are like first, first, <laughs> so awesome. It reminds me because you know I have family with six kids, right? Uh, one of six, and we'd like whenever there was something cool, like we were racing to it, like to get there and to sit down, you'd say they'd say first, <laughs> and then everybody's like, oh, <laughs> oh dude, awesome. <laughs> All right, we're having too much fun. It's fun to be back in this in 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 the. Uh oh, I froze up. Hang on, let's see what's going on. There we go. Um, it's it's fun to be back in the uh, broadcasting seat. We love being here, and we we're so grateful that people actually listen to this show and support the show. And also, <clears throat> you know, I talked about our producers. Hang on, just a sec. Let me. Uh, um, the one thing I didn't uh, mention is that uh, for all of our supporters. Um, and you can become a supporter for $5 a month. As little as $5 a month, you have access to Messiah Matters More. It's a great page where we put extra content. And uh, where we will be posting, by the way, um, our Messiah Matters More tour. When we when we go on, when we go to these places, we're going to try to videotape them and we're going to put them in the Messiah Matters More section. Um, and that's open for any of our producers and any of our supporters. Anyway, there's a new video up. We put it up yesterday. We try to do something weekly, but usually it's three times, average about three times a month. Right. And Just you and I talking, but there's additional content. Yeah. Like, you know, lectures. the Denver conferences and Ontario, all that stuff. Yeah. And we're going to, uh, you know, also if we write something, which... We haven't written anything in a long time, but if we write something, it usually goes up in there. Um, so anyway, 
the point is, is the whole point of all that is that there is a new, um, there is a new video up there on, uh, what do we do? Acts 21. It's about 17 minutes yeah. long. There's a voicemail. We, a great voicemail. Oh, and that, oh, thank you for man. saying that because I have to mention this. Luke, if you're listening to this, Luke is the one who sent the voicemail and we're going to, uh, address oh, Tim. Oh, is it? It's Tim, Tim, Tim. Uh, I'm sorry. Tim sent in the email. It was a Bible name. It was a Bible name. Yes, exactly. It Tim, was a New Testament Bible name. <laughs> Tim sent in this. This he he called the comment line. We're going to respond to his question on Hebrews probably next week. But we responded to his question on Acts twenty one in the Messiah Matters More section. Tim, if you're listening, shoot me an email and uh, and I will send you a link to that so that you, your specific question can be answered on that one. You have to prove to us that you're the same, Tim. Tim, by, yes, exactly. You have to tell us something about your voicemail that nobody else would know. <laughs> and Helen says, rumor from here uh, is that you're coming to Ontario. Yes, we. Uh, Rob and I are currently planning. We're, we're planning. Uh, to come to Ontario. This actually came from someone outside of Helen's Senegal. We need to make sure that, that the winter doesn't like freeze you guys over up there. Yeah, we're probably going to come up in June. Probably things thaw. Yeah, June. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else is the one who contacted me about Ontario, though. And we and they're, they're about an hour away from Helen's community. Oh, okay. And so we're trying to coordinate between the two. I think it'll be a good time, though. We're, I'm very excited to get back up to Ontario. Honestly, Ontario is... I had a lovely time up there. The people are just fantastic. I'm so, you know, I'm excited to see Helen and I, I hope to meet Helen's husband and uh, her children were awesome. The Takaks, man, I love that family. They're great. And they're hockey fans. So, all right, let's get this out of the way real quick. I would be showing my ignorance there because I, I don't know the first thing about hockey. I got a hockey jersey out of it too. So, okay. Um, 253-465-3205. Speaking of Tim calling our comment line, you can call it too. 253-465-3205. You don't talk to us. Just leave a message and tell us what you're thinking. And shoot us an email. Cheg at com. It's C-H-E-G-G, two G's at TorahResource.com. And uh, <laughs> Helen says AC this time, I promise. It was hot. Uh, Torah Resource went August, yeah. Yeah, Torah Resource is brought or uh, Torah Resource Messiah Matters is brought to you by Torah Resource. Go to Torah Resource for all of your uh, research needs and sign up for school. You should do it. You don't have to be in a program. You can just sign up for individual classes. Okay. With all that said, let's get into it. Um, we've had some really good. Uh, by the way, I, I Rob doesn't even know this. I checked. Uh, I was told to check the uh, Torah Resource Facebook. Now Messiah Matters has its own Facebook page. And we did that because Rob loves, and rightly so, loves to uh, post little things up there throughout the week. So you can go and like our Facebook page. It's Messiah Matters. Well, Torah Resource has a Facebook page as well. What I did not realize is that people have been sending us questions to the Torah Resource Facebook page as well. So I went in there yesterday. I pulled about four questions. Fantastic questions. Hard questions, honestly. I looked at them and I thought, man, that's a good one. I'm going to have to... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to uh, really. Is there an app to consolidate all? all I our know, right? Well, questions. yeah. Um, Helen, so yeah, we, we we don't generally we're not neglectful. Usually, I mean, generally, it's not our nature to. We're not trying to avoid a question. It's just so if you ask a question and we don't hear back, and you don't hear back, feel free to ping us again, and it's not going to feel like you're hassling us or anything. That's right. Okay, so anyway, I got a bunch of those. We're going we're gonna, to uh, address those. But uh, for now, let's go to this. This is a good question. We met this wonderful young lady, Susan, 
down in Colorado Springs when we were there. And man, was she fun to talk to. And just a, a blessing to meet her and, and talk to her about She's got tons of ministry opportunities and she's she's leading a ladies group and like my wife does my wife leads a ladies group as well so um it was really nice to to sit and chat with her and and see how the lord's using her Uh, so she writes in and she says this she says so i was listening to a recent podcast and i heard rob comment that the ten commandments aren't actually in an imperative form since my torah ladies group and i will be starting exodus 20 on monday morning, I thought I'd ask for some elaboration on that idea. So this was sent on, I think, over the weekend. So our apologies for being late because now, you know, she started on Monday. That's when she wanted. Uh, oh, well, I mean, yeah, we can talk about it a little bit uh, anyway. Well, absolutely. I don't think she's the only person who, who mentioned this. <laughs> no, I, uh, Wendy sent an email asking about it, too. So if if you hear from at least two different, completely different sources, you know that some, you know, the idea was latched on out there. And so we appreciate getting that so we can go back and clarify. Um, it might sound a little technical, but if you we have to put on our grammar hat, when we, in English, if I say, Caleb, go do this, go to the store and buy some bread. That in English, we would break that down and we'd say the verb go is what we call a command form or an imperative. It's literally a command, right? You That's go like, do this, yeah. Yeah, it's like in Matthew 10 where the, the centurion under, who's describing authority says, I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes, yeah. right, et cetera, et cetera. This is called an imperative. We call that an imperative. Right. We call it an imperative or command form in English. We call it that in Greek. We call it that in Hebrew. Um, the Ten Commandments what we call the Ten Commandments, are not in that imperative form. Uh, it, it's in a, a, a slightly different uh, uh, grammatical construction. And we know that the word, te- the Ten Commandments is really a later, I think probably, you know, early modern description. Because obviously in the Hebrew, in the Torah itself, they're not called the Ten Commandments, they're called the what? Ten words. The ten words, the devarim, aseret devarim, the ten words. So, uh, and then the actual grammatical construction. If you look at the ten words, I pulled them up here. Um, like the first one, right, is Anochi uh, Adonai Eloheka, I am the Lord your God, and then it's Lo Yehielacha Elohim Acherim. There, there will not be for you other Elohim. So in other words, so it's not, you will not, so wait, hang on just a sec. Let me, let me see if I, because not being the Hebrew scholar that you are, let me try to break this down. So it's not, you will have no other gods before me. That would be an imperative. In other words, it is that, but rather it is, there will be no, there will be no other gods right, for you. Right. Right. Okay. And, um, the same thing with first, now there's numerous subcategories. We don't need to get into the division. Obviously the Jewish tradition divides the ten up different than the Catholics, than the Lutherans, than the Reformers, etc. Um, but if you if you look at uh, verse seven, Lotisa et Shem Adonai Loheka, you will not take the name of the Lord. You know, um, but like is it okay, NASB wait. says you shall not. But so the the idea here is wait, wait, hang on, just a sec. But isn't that in some ways an imperative because you will not? In other words, like isn't that a command? Isn't so, it some so form here, of a command? Here's, the, here's where it shifts. 
So if the if the Torah itself calls them words, the ten things, the ten devarim, the ten words, we do see in the Greek and apostolic writings, for example, Matthew 15 or Mark 7, when Yeshua says, you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition, and then when he lists the commandment, he lists commandments, right? Or in with the rich young ruler, he says, well, you know the commandments, and this is the Greek word entole, you know the commandments, you know, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. You know, he lists the 10 words and he's calling them entole uh, or the commandment. And then again, I think it's like Romans 13, like if there's any commandment, right? And he he lists commandments from the 10 words. Can so, I just can I just stop you for just one second? Yeah, go ahead. We have to we have to note this. Oh, did that work? Mm-hmm. Um I heard it. Jonathan Bishop just gave us our first uh, our first uh, super chat. It's the first time anyone's given us a super chat. Five bucks to Jonathan Bishop. We appreciate your donation. And he says, I know you all get a lot of flack for calling out people such as Monty Judah and Jonathan Kahn, but I just wanted to say I appreciate you doing so. Thank hey, you, Jonathan. thank you, man. We appreciate that. And Joshua, before that, he asks this question. He says, what mood is it in the lexicon? He's talking about the 10 words. That's awesome. What's so funny? What his name's Jonathan? Yeah. Jonathan, what you don't know is Caleb right before our show. Caleb's like, and I didn't even know this existed. He's like, you know what? I'm surprised that no one's used Super Chat before. Like literally right 20 before minutes we came ago. On. Yeah. Yeah. Right before so we came on. That's really cool that in the same day you jumped on that and did that. So, oh, sorry. So the other bit was. Uh, yeah. Joshua asks, what mood is it in the Septuagint? In other words, what oh, mood okay. is it? Okay. So in do we Greek, have commands or, in, yeah, imperative? Good question. The Greek uses of the Greek, I'm not talking about the Greek in the apostolic writings, I'm talking about the Greek Septuagint of like, say, Exodus 20. It follows the same exact, it's replicating the Hebrew exactly. It uses lo, which is the negative particle, plus what we call a, a Greek would be a future. In the Hebrew, it's an, an imperfect. You will not. So it uses uh, not plus a future form. Now, when you when you learn Koine Greek, they'll say this is a command form. This they'll say it's a kind. They don't classify it an imperative, but they kind of put it under a, a kind of negative imperative. But when we understand it in terms of, I here's the point. The core point is this: command is not a helpful enough term. To get the nuance, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. Okay, it's so, okay to call it a commandment because they're clearly commandments. There's a commander, and then we're commanded. Um, but the Greek, the Hebrew, doesn't use the word mitzvah or or yitzaveh, which is that verb in he commanded. In this situation, it calls them words rather than mitzvot, and because it's a covenant, these are ongoing. Um, instructions or directions in behavior and they're truths here's the other thing they're also truths in other words yeshua for example abided in them as truths right he never sinned so they describe for yeshua they describe the reality of his life and as we are more and more shaped into the image of Yeshua as we are renewed in our mind, etc., and in our we're pruned and corrected and we bring more fruit. We are also more, it's more and more describing our life. 
And so anyway, that's a little nuance I think that gets missed if we just say, oh, it's like God said, go do this. And now the person goes and does something um, that has to do with projecting covenant life reality, what the terms of the covenant are. So I, I don't know if that's helpful. Maybe I'm maybe that's a nuance that isn't helpful for people. It's I'm hoping I'm doing a decent job of communicating, but it's helpful for me. Fair enough. I'm a little like I want you to expand just a little bit on the idea of uh, there will not be. So in other words, it's not necessarily that it's not a command, because, but it's just not an imperative. In other because it's not a command to us. There will not be. Any well, other okay, with the with the first commandment or the the second commandment, if it's lo yehiel lacha Elohim acharim, there will not be that. That has to do with the third how you say to have. There's no verb in Hebrew to have. It's lihiot le to be to like to haya um, le to be to something means there is to me. Right. Uh, there was to me, right? Or there will be to me. Yeah, it's so it's like maybe the, it's, maybe that commandment's not the best exemplar for this point. Um, yeah, it's weird in Hebrew because it's like relation. It's like spatial relationship is how a lot of that is. That's the way I've understood it. In other words, there is to me like it's almost spatial relationship is how you say there will be or like there will be for me. Or, here's another idea of about a commandment. Just if we're going to just push on this a little further, like the, like Caleb, you say, Rob, call me on Skype, right? Or you text me or you say, and you send a, what is, we would say, okay, that's a command. Then I, what I do is I get on, I, I, I do what you asked or what you told me to do. Right. That's, we would say, okay, that's fulfilled now. It's not an ongoing, it's not like for the rest of my life, I should be on, you know, I see it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of puncti um, punctiliar kind of, uh, aspect to it whereas the the 10 words are not that way the 10 words are in, uh, imperatives into into degree that they are that someone who is learning what not to do and turning away from what not to do and walking in what to do and it's an ongoing right it, it there's no there's no day <laughs> where I'm not obligated. Right. Okay. I understand. Carl, Carl, it's, Carl says, a whole discussion. Carl, Carl in the chat room says, it's called a negatory indicative. I use it with my kids sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I asked him for an example. No, that's really good. Is that, is that Carl from? Yeah. Carl, right on, Carl. That's, that's a great point because it's instructive, right? You will not do this. Like, you will not run out in trap, you know, into the street. That kind okay, of thing, yeah. a parent to a child saying, you will not run out into the street does not mean just right now. All the time. That means this is a, this is like a, a reality that you're to abide within. Right. And, okay. and I just, my only point is that commandment, it's okay to be a little bit, uh, say, you know, commandment might not be the, the best, most accurate way to think of that whole concept. That's, that's it. Got it. We got a, uh, a comment. We're going to change gears here. And as I change gears, let's uh, let's bring this up real quick. 253-465-3205. That's our comment line. And see hagatorresource.com. So if you have any comments about our 
our uh, conversation on the 10 words, you can send it there. Luke writes, and this is where I was getting confused between Luke and Tim, and I apologize. Luke writes, Hi, brother. I'm enjoying watching the videos. I have a question for you. As you may know, many New Testament scholars affirm that we have close to 6,000 ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts. Do you know what is the age range for a manuscript to be considered ancient? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty. So ancient itself is a vague term. Usually what it means is like it's no more clear than, say, like from days long gone or um yeah days you know in a world before or an age before our age kind of thing so it's not it's too vague you won't see it used much in uh the writings of like dr daniel wallace or those that are they might use it uh in introduct introducing a, a paper or something and, and that they're going to give a presentation just to kind of orient readers especially if, you know, uh, if they're just talking to lay people into like, oh, that's a long, long time ago. Uh, and then they'll get into the nuts and the bolts. But it's not really a helpful term. If you get ancient, it's not. And, and when talking about manuscripts, because what if you're really going to be all in and talk about manuscripts, basically, you just got a chronology like a giant ruler. And then you've got scholars doing their best to to place each individual manuscript on that timeline. And not only on a timeline, but geographical location and um, relation, genealogical relationship with other manuscripts, right? Um, just like in our Messiah Matters More that we put up this week, we talked a little bit about, about Acts 21, and there's a, a, a textual variant that you see in what we call the Textus Receptus, which is, you know, we see it in the King James, but you won't see it in NIV, NASB, right. ESV. Uh, net Bible or any of that. Well, why is that? Well, it's because different manuscripts were given privilege, were given priority than were given in the King James. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, we have to remember one thing, and Dr. Wallace makes this point, you know, that in the King, days of the King James, they, on, they only had so many manuscripts available to them, right? They didn't have, right. you know, they had the printing press, but, but you know, so you know, communication still happened at the speed of horseback, you know, and, and they didn't have uh, access to all these other manuscripts. They couldn't just travel the world. And and, and so that's textual criticism. What If we use that term, that is the field of study that tries to make sense of the manuscripts we have when we don't have the original autograph. Like, for example, no one no one's claiming we have Paul's original like right. this is the actual, uh, you know, papyrus or whatever that that Paul wrote on, and this is his actual handwriting. You know, like we have, for example, Thomas Jefferson's writing of different drafts of the Declaration of Independence, or we have, you know, Abraham Lincoln sketch in his own hand sketching out the the Gettysburg Address. We have stuff like that. We don't have Paul's sketches for Romans, right? So That'd the question is, what do we do then? How do we, we have 3,000, 4,000, 6,000 manuscripts. How do we be good stewards? What is God's wisdom in, in making sense of them? And how do we sort them? How do we arrange them? How do we know which ones to give priority? And so sometimes you might see the word ancient in that case to differentiate texts that would be from, let's say, the second through the fifth century, 
from texts that maybe a medieval Catholic scribe wrote, like in the year 1100 or 1200. They're going to say the ancient, if I were given both those sets, I would say the ancient ones are the ones from, you know, uh, before the rise of Islam, you know, back in the, the 300s, 400s. And I would say the medieval ones, I would call them medieval. I wouldn't call them ancient. But that's my personal so, uh, sense of the term. Joshua actually makes it. Uh, well, he, he here's his point. He says, I believe that the manuscript type, manuscript is in quotes, manuscript title ends around the time that the printing press was created. What I mean by this is that I believe scholars stop using this title for writings written after the invention of the printing press. Oh, manuscript? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Technically, manuscript is just from Latin, manus for your hand, and, and script is for writing, written I think by what, hand. I, I think what Luke was asking was more about the, the question of the word ancient as opposed to manuscript. In other words, oh, okay. what, what okay. is... So uh, jo Joshua is uh, using maybe... I think... I don't want to misrepresent. Uh, Joshua, it seems to me, is, is looking more at the title manuscript, whereas Luke was... Um, Asking more about the word ancient. What makes it ancient manuscript? Luke's or Josh was talking more about uh, manuscript itself. So, for example, the here here's oh, some differentiation. I would say that Josephus was an ancient author, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient manuscripts. But I would then say that our oldest, probably I, I would have to go check, but something like this. Our oldest manuscripts of Josephus might not be ancient. In other words, we know Josephus was an ancient writer. He lived in the first century BC and he right. wrote then. But our manuscripts of Josephus' writings, the surviving writings or copies, are probably written by medieval scribes and they're not considered ancient in my view. So, so do you see that the, even there you could be confused as, wait a minute, if it's ancient, if Josephus wrote it, it's ancient. Well, the manuscript was produced, let's say, in the 1100 or 1200. But Josephus himself lived a thousand years or more prior to that. So um, the word is used relatively to differentiate between significant points on a chronology scale. That's, um, And then manuscript, back to the term manuscript, however, even now, when even today, if you submit, if you're going to, if a book, publisher is going to publish your work you submit a manuscript and they sure. use the word manuscript sure, sure, even sure. though it's digital right so today the print book printers will say the digital file that you submit or the printed digital file from your computer is the is called the manuscript and then once it's printed and, it, and you've got a book you know hot off the press that's not the manuscript so even the word manuscript <laughs> in today's book publishing jargon doesn't mean written by hand anymore it just means it's the author's work submitted in its final form pre-publishing so adam i think we're getting adam, into the weeds here adam adam hits the nail on the head here he says uh there isn't a date on the timeline to define ancient it is a fluid term good that's an excellent way to put it subjective yeah okay let's move on so um this comes from multiple places but i we get asked this question often and not by one person. I took Helen. She's in the chat room. Um, I took Helen's question because she kind of touches on it. And I basically formed <laughs> another question out of her question. Her question goes like this. Have you or your father written or have you lectured on the divorce of Israel? I guess it would, be, uh, would lead into the idea of how 
the church replaced Israel. So there's so many different aspects to this. The two main aspects that we get and what Helen is talking about in terms of replacement theology is God divorced Israel, and therefore he's done with Israel. She can't return, and therefore um, God has chosen someone else, and that someone else is the church. This is how we, I mean, and this is a, this is a, a theology that a lot of people within modern Christianity, whether they know it or not, some people don't even know this is really what they're uh, putting forward, but uh, some people certainly know that this is what they're putting forward. Uh, but the idea is that you know the church is the church has replaced Israel because Israel was divorced. So that's one idea. The problem with that is that prophecy in and of itself, I mean, we can speak against replacement theology all day long. The main problem with that is that the prophecies clearly speak of God's relationship with Israel in the end times. In other words, even the New Covenant, right? In those days, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, right? So obviously, and it's talking about Israel and Judah. Judah goes away. It, it, I don't think that's the wrong. Let's, let's rephrase that. Judah doesn't go away. Judah gets put in its rightful place, which is part of Israel. In other words, I think that God's plan is that Israel is one entity. It's not two. Israel and Judah are not two separate entities. It's Israel. Judah is part of Israel. Because of sin, they were separated. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that's a... So, but the, but the point, point the point here is that uh, I don't think that biblically we... Now, this actually can speak to Torah observance as well, because, uh, you know, one of the big objections that we have, or that we may hear, and we talked about this in our Messiah Matters More video, one of the big objections that we hear is, oh, the Torah is only for Israel. It was only for Israel. It's not for the Gentiles. It's only for Israel. We even see this when we get into passages like uh, Acts 15 and Acts 21, right? Um, oh, well, that's for the Jews. The Gentiles have separate laws. And why is this? Well, because Israel is no longer God's people. Now the church is God's people. So if you're a believer in, in Jesus Christ, this is not what I believe, by the way. I'm, I'm showing what uh, a lot of mainstream replacement theology would say. If you're part of the church, even if you have Jewish blood, you're no longer really part of Israel. You're part of the church, and therefore you're one of God's chosen. Um, I reject this. I think if you're listening to this show for the first time or if you're stumbling upon us, um, I, I reject this straight out. There, I just don't think that this can be upheld at all within Scripture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one quick, if you're talking about that with somebody, you can just say, you know, when you why did Yeshua cite Isaiah 56 when he's knocking over the money-changing tables, right? Um, you know, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Well, the Abrahamic covenant in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The idea of, of, you know, Gentiles, why was Peter, why did Peter need the vision to kick him in the rear, to, to be, uh, obedient, to go up to, to Caesarea Philippi or no. to Caesarea Maritima so, and see, uh, Cornelius house. Cause Cornelius was Gentile. Some well, some people would say, well, yeah, this this proves replacement theology that Israel is going away, and now the church, the, you know, they're becoming the church; they're not becoming Israel. But if we look at Paul, and I know, you know, my Christian brothers and sisters who have debated me on, on this subject, uh, just in personal conversation, have said that that I am um, I'm placing uh, meaning on the olive branch and the root that uh, Paul doesn't place there. 
However, I think it's clear that the, 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 I, I believe it's clear to me at least that the olive branch in Romans 11 is Israel and the root is the Abrahamic covenant and that the Gentiles are grafted into the, into the olive branch because of the root. And the root is in your seed, all the nations of the earth will right. be blessed. So, and some of the natural branches are broken off. Others are, gra- you know, unnatural branches are grafted in so on and so forth. Um, it's such a beautiful picture and even a child, this is the thing when, when it gets to biblical truths, you just look at Yeshua's amazing parables and then this, this image of the tree and they're so gentle and they lock into our memories. And, but that doesn't mean we, we get the full weight of what the image is, you know? And, and so anyway, I just want to say that this it's important for us to ponder what this tree means and come. I think we should, if we're not sure of what the tree means in Romans 11, we should make that a, make that a priority to chew on that, dive into that, ask questions, read, read Romans as an entirety, read the chapters like nine and 10 leading up to it. There's backstory you to do it. So, you, so you have an ownership of, of what it is. And so you can talk about it intelligently with people who, who aren't aware of it. This is, there's backstory to this, by the way, because Rob and I had to chew on this passage and we chewed on it separately and we kind of chewed on it together into, what was it, 2014, 2013, 2014 at Tory Resource Institute family camp. Rob and I had a discussion with some other people about what the olive tree was. And Rob and I disagreed and we both disagreed with my father. (laughs) <laughs> and so this was it was it was really quite a uh a fun I can't even remember that you've got a good memory oh man it was yeah and and so we went round anyway. and round for a bit about what the olive tree was and it was really a good time of of uh wrestling with it and then after that it took about it took me about six to eight months before to research and understand and to really get the context before i solidified my own view on it i think the funny thing is is that now all three of us my dad Rob and myself are all in agreement, I believe, on on what the olive tree is uh, in in this place in, in Romans eleven. Um, anyway, um, but I want to go even farther on a different rabbit trail because now that we've opened this Pandora's box, the box you know you, it's everywhere. Um, and so several weeks ago, we talked. Maybe it was last week. I forget. We talked about the idea of there is a new two house um, as opposed to the old two house. So and so somebody says. Um, in modern two house version is the modern two house version is a house of Israel was divorced. Judah remains in covenant house of Israel mixed with nations and through Christ death, resurrection, they were brought them, brought them back. So what's interesting about the, we talked about what we believe the nineties two house was. And somebody wrote in and said, I don't understand what's the difference because we still see that two house, the old two house in the, in the nineties, the way that I see old, old two house or the first two house the theological <laughs> movement was 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 very bloodline oriented it was based on uh, british israelism and what this means is that um the tri- the tribes of israel now 
in this in this idea, Judah and Israel is totally separate. Israel was dispersed about among the nations. If you come to Christ in any way, shape, or form, and, uh, and you become part of that covenant people, then you're actually one of those lost tribes of Israel. Therefore, everyone has some form of bloodline back to Israel who is a believer in Yeshua. This is what, and Bachi Wooten was, was kind of the catalyst for, for this understanding of the 90s two-house uh, And one of the theology. one of the anchor verses that you might see cited in there is in Matthew, I think it's in, is it in 10 and in 15, I think. It's only places in all the apostolic writings, Matthew 10 and 15. He says something about, I come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that has been taken as a, that's been run up the flagpole, the banner to say, Yeshua came for the northern to rebring bring the northern kingdom back to Judah. And it's a wow, it's a you know, it's a it's a good sell. You know, I mean you could write a book on that. You could, you could make a movie movers, on that. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 got traction, but sadly it's it's not accurate. Um just because it sound it has a ring to it doesn't mean it's actually true. Um first off, uh Judah needs the gospel. Even if even if we allow that Yeshua came only, you know, only for Israel, you know, for the stock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and no one else, um, you still have the problem of Judah needs. It's very clear from the scriptures that uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or non-Jewish, um, you need Yeshua, right, if, if for salvation. Um, <clears throat> But aside from that, as Caleb, you already pointed out earlier today, and, and we have it time and again, the Abrahamic covenant is it's clear. You know, he says, count the stars, you know, if you're able. Um, that's well, and, an imperative. And, and it talks way. about the nations coming and bowing, and, and, the, and the nations, right? It talks about... Isaiah know, 2, right. right? Come, let <laughs> us go up, right? These are the nations that are, and they're not Israel. They're not lost Israel. These are non-Israel that are right worshiping the god of israel and they're coming to because and they're forsaking any other uh orientation to reality you know um so but so, the, the the point here, so that this is uh what what i consider to be the 90s theological understanding of two house now somebody wrote uh, us and said okay we still see this today and actually joshua in the in the chat room says uh, it's it's creeping into our British Israelism is creeping into our congregation again. So it, this form of theolo- theology of two house is still alive. It hasn't gone away. There's no question because if you go into, if you ever go into like a used bookstore or even like a, a Goodwill, you know, and you go through their Bible books, you'll see books, you know, for 50 cents or 25 cents, you know, that are the, those books from the 80s and 90s that are right. pushing that. And people, so they're super low hanging fruit in terms of, accessible literature someone who's even started to think about shabbat or something you know from a christian might just grab onto that and say oh here's someone who's thinking about this and they're the ones who are going to be vulnerable to consuming that and not having anyone's experienced helping them learn to walk the path and avoid the pitfalls etc um they're going to be on their own learning curve and that's okay 
that sometimes that's what the Lord has in store for us is to to go and experience some of these different things and get to the end of the of the logic of the system and go, oh, this doesn't actually gel with the right. whole of Scripture. So, um, but hang on just a sec. We have to explain though because we're way off in the weeds. I know, and and that's okay. We'll bring it back. But we have to explain now what the what the difference is between what I'm calling the '90s two house theology as opposed to the modern two house theology. You have these people. God bless them, and their brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm not putting them down at all. But you have these people who are now coming into the Torah movement, and maybe you know after 2009, 2010, sometime after that, that you know they've been in the Torah movement now five, ten years, something like that, whatever. And and the idea of two house for them is different than this 90s theology. To them, it has nothing to do with bloodline. To them, it has to do with the idea that Israel and Judah were split. Israel was scattered among the nations. Judah is in Israel still. And um, and that God is calling back the lost tribes of Israel to the, the land and the people of Israel. Now, if, if we're going to classify two house... I mean, like today. Yeah. Today. Well, that's, you'll see that. You don't even have to have any kind of Christianity or, or New Testament... Um, influence in your ideology or in your religion, because you even in the state of Israel, don't they? Some of the Beta Israel or whatever from Africa, and they leave their tribes of Israel. Right. They're right. like long lost, you know, tribes. Okay, that so those there's people who have are framing their life with that narrative, and the gospel is not a is not a transformative. Uh, <laughs> Uh, part of their of their life, you know. So, so the the only problem that, that I have with this modern idea of of two house theology is that Judah was scattered too. Judah didn't stay in it. You can't look at Hasidic Jews today and say, "Oh, they're all from Judah," right? In other words, you're trying to you're trying to put people into these these categories that. The categories are much more broad than that. You know, the Sephardic Jews that were that were scattered and and um, you know, we have it from every tribe. It's not like like Judah somehow kept their their land in Israel and weren't scattered about. And you can't look at people who have been in the land before the you know before 1948 and say, oh yes, they must be from the tribe of Judah, or they must be from the southern tribes. It's not. That's. I'm sorry. That's just not the reality that we, Tri- we know another way to think of it tribal tribal affiliation cannot really be empirically like demonstrated and that's the, and that's the point and so, you know? so, so, so there's me, people who'll do they'll do they'll do a blood test or whatever on a genealogy and they'll say oh i was i've got you know some fraction of ashkenazi or whatever and right. so they think that their dna tells them that they we have jewish blood way way back or we have native american blood um, but the but the point for me is I can swallow the modern uh, two house theology more than I can the '90s two house theology. But what I'm saying is that it seems that there is this clear distinction between the two because the modern two house theology is saying more. No, the nations are coming too. The nations are coming to to the Lord as well. But but we have to recognize these two different houses of Israel and Judah. There's okay. actually another one. Go for it. I want to that I've encountered. Native American Israel Israelitism, yeah, and, and this, this is this yeah. goes this is older than Mormonism. This we have back into the fifteenth, at least sixteenth century, 
um, colonial writings, you know, and, and people, and this is where, you know, Joseph Smith got a lot of his uh, inspiration. People were right. ready to believe this, right? That right. there were Native American tribes that spoke some kind of dialect of Hebrew and they were the lost tribes of Israel. And the Book of Mormon leverages that myth. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and and that's part of, so if you look at early Mormon objectives, it's like to reunite the, the tribes of Israel in Zion. Well, where's Zion? Well, it's no longer, it's not Jerusalem, it's in like Illinois, or I don't I don't know exactly where it was, but they had a... I think it's Pennsylvania, but the... the, the they had a Zion, right? And, yeah. and uh, anyway. What's interesting about this is that... It's a powerful ideology. It's so powerful that it creeps into... I mean, it creeps into the Hebrew roots in the Messianic movement even today, right? I mean, I'm sorry, but to think that God has created some kind of of covenant relationship with the the with national America, in and of itself, is replacement theology. You know, and and I, I we've spoken before about Jonathan Kahn and his idea of of you know if we keep if America like America is in covenant with God. Well, he wouldn't say that, you know, Khan is very, he tries to be very careful, even though I'm convinced that what he's, and I know that he's not trying to do this, but I'm convinced that what Khan is putting forward is actually uh, Americanism and or replacement theology of America with with Israel. And he, he would say, no, 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 it, no, not at all. But the idea that if you, if we continue in our ways, we are going to bring the covenant curses on us. Which means we're already in the covenant. Right, which means that in the count, you just have to assume that if we keep the co- the covenant, if America as a nation keeps the covenant, then what? We'll receive the covenant blessings. But the problem is, is that God never talks about the land of America, and, it, and God never talks about being in covenant with America, and he never talks about America as being his land. The reason the covenant is, I mean... Well, the One, whole earth is his, but but yeah, absolutely. But but if we look at the and this is something that I've started to to really um, ponder and look at in the scriptures. If we look at the covenants, it's attached completely attached to the land itself, the land of Israel. In other words, we tithe the land, right? The idea of tithing money—you don't tithe money except for the the holy half shekel once a year. That's an offering, a free will offering. You can give money to the temple, but you can't. Basically, you tithe the produce. Why? Because the land is the Lord's. It's and it's the, the priestly's. It's the priests' due. I mean, it's exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's a. It's an economy. It's an actual. This economy. is also. This is also why you're not allowed to. Like the land goes back to the tribal rightful owner in the jubilee year, right? Is because the land is the Lord's and it belongs to Him. But you can sell your property in the city. In other words, the agricultural land out in the, you know, in the in the uh, what uh, farmland essentially this is the land that that uh, god you know you have to wrest the land from being tilled and being uh, harvested why because the land is the lord's you have to let the land rest every you know every 7 years why because the land is the lord's you have to you know well if you live in a, an apartment in the city what's the repercussions I mean, what what do you have to do for that? You can't let your land rest if you're living in an apartment in the city of, of Jerusalem, even in that time, even when you even when Israel came into the land. So, the, I mean, we're we're off in the weeds now. But the point is, is that the idea back of the, we're back in the weeds. Yeah, exactly. 
the point is is that the idea that that America is God's land, sure, all I mean in the broader sense of all, the entire world is the Lord's, absolutely. But the idea that we can keep the covenant and all of a sudden we get all the covenant blessings, I'm sorry, I don't see it in scripture. Okay, we got just a couple minutes left. We'll probably pick this conversation back up. Um, so let, but let's look at this just real quick. Um, let's start to get into it. Here's the second argument <laughs> that I that I uh, I see in this, and we'll probably touch on this a lot more next week. This is the idea that God divorced Israel, and the only way that Israel can come back and be uh, in covenant relationship with God is if one of the two parties dies, and therefore. God sends Yeshua to die on the cross. He dies, and now he can marry Israel again. This, I think that one of the reasons that this is so annoying to me is because I, I, I think that this is just, it misses the mark on why Yeshua died. And it's totally and completely not scriptural. And the reason I think this, and uh, should we jump into this right now? Or do you, I mean, what? Yeah, we can do that. We can pick it up next week. Okay, so this is, uh, this is based on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, this is very important for, uh, I mean, this is a very important statement, and... Uh, rest of the passage set up this is everything read is the setup and the the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land Once again, we're talking about land. You should not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So um, within the the Hebrew Roots and Messianic movement, this is a really big point. It seems like this theology of, oh, Jesus had to die so uh, so that God could marry Israel again. This is like a real big uh, pushing theology right now. The problem is, is that first, and, and it's built on a certain reading of Romans seven, right? I think we've talked about this before. Yeah, have we? Let's go to Romans seven. Okay, we can do that right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, oh yes, I understand what you're saying now. I get what you're saying. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Yes, we have so the, talked about this. Oh yeah. So the picture, though, is that is what I'm understanding. You were describing earlier is the is this was the predicament God got it. God was in a predicament. Right. He divorced his wife, <laughs> but he had pri- previously made an eternal covenant. Right. I'm not laughing at, at anyone who believes no, this, by the way. No. I, and so, I, so the predicament was, what does he do? Well, if he dies, he releases her from a 
this is the way they I think it's put together. Right. She's somehow released from being an adulteress <clears throat> because her husband's now dead. Right. So that any claim of her being adulteress somehow have disappeared. So her sin's gone, which is problematic because if she if if she if she was an adulteress while her sin is a lot while her husband was alive, her that sin remains even if her husband dies, you know. You know, so anyway, but then somehow that go, that's uh, wait, hang Jesus, on just like, wait, 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 let's stop right there because that's a great point. So in other words, um, a man is married to a woman. She goes, she cheats on her husband with another man. She's right by tour right there. She's an adulteress. She's an adulteress. Now, all of a sudden in the next five days, you know, he finds out he's upset. He has a heart attack. He dies. That doesn't mean that her sin is gone. That does not relieve her from her. Right. That does not solve her problem. In exactly. Terms of, in other words, she yeah. should still be under under discipline. Right. Under, I mean, if it was in Torah time, she'd, she'd still, still be stoned. Yeah. 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 So, well, it's a it's a good question. But in any event, we're we're the idea of Paul here describing why Yeshua had to die is not so that to solve this conundrum of, of applying Deuteronomy 24 with God's covenant with Israel. <clears throat> One of the, okay. I, I want to make, somebody accused me of laughing at, at people that I disagree with. I'm not laughing at anyone who believes this. The reason I'm laughing is because what I don't understand, you know, I, a piece of me is because I don't know what to do except for laugh. It's either laugh or cry. Right. But the, the biggest problem with this theology is that it, like it basically takes a portion of Deuteronomy 24 and that portion is, hang on, let's go back to it. Deuteronomy, oops, Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out uh, of his house and she departs out of his house. Now, what th this theology has to do is then skip. It has to skip down to like, what verse 24 you're not allowed to marry her again because of because she'll bring sin on the land it, it, basically you've skipped almost the entire passage which is that she goes and she marries another the problem is is that israel has never gone and married another she's whored right i mean jeremiah is clear on this she's gone and she's whored the imagery is very vivid, right? Jeremiah, Hosea, they use They're this. They're drawing on this imagery in the same way in Jeremiah 2, they, uh, the prophet paints them as a thief, right? That, that Israel is, a, uh, Judah is a thief. So, and then in the same chapter in Jeremiah 3, he, where we talk about the divorce, he also then talks about Israel as God's children, as his sons. Right. So, what what prophets do is they draw on the Torah and then they leverage God's justice in the Torah to preach repentance. That's that's the leverage. The leverage of Jeremiah and Jeremiah three, I believe, is the only explicit where it's clearly quoting Deuteronomy twenty four. We have Hosea and we have a little bit in Isaiah. I think it's chapter fifty. But Jeremiah 3 is where it's explicit. It's obvious that Jeremiah is looking at the Deuteronomy 24 passage that you just read, Caleb. And he's 
using that to leverage, to call Israel to repentance. And there's so many ways, there's so much to do to talk about this. But here's, here's a core point, is that there is no husband like Yodhivave. Israel can't go and marry another husband. What Israel does, or Judah, in the case of Jeremiah 3, goes and plays the harlot over and over again with different lovers, right. as, it, as, the, as in the poetic metaphor here. And what is demonstrated is that, that Yodhivave has an eternally binding love for Israel that's, that, that even though he's angry for a, uh, you know, because he's, you know, hates transgression, but the under, underlying covenantal love is, is forever. It's unbreakable. He swore by himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He, so there is no other, in fact. And this gets us kind of back to the 10 words idea. There will be no other Elohim, right? Elohim Acharim so Je- me. Jessica puts Jessica uh, gives us an example of the way that she was taught and understood this theology, which is that God could not come back into covenant with her, Israel, because he had divorced her and she married another. That is idols. But we don't see that. Nowhere, there's multiple things that need to be said here. And, and actually, uh, so we should probably reference at some point um, Avery, right? Gary uh, Avery, is it? Yeah, Gary Avery is... Uh, Oh, you, Gary Yates. Yates, I'm sorry. Gary Yates is uh, is a, a doctor of theology, and, and uh, he gave a, a a lecture on this at the 2018 Evangelical Theological Society in Denver, Colorado. It's it's fantastic, by the way. Um, so, and I listened to it yesterday, and uh, and I believe that uh, Rob was actually there listening to, to yeah, Dr. Yates. I, I liked it. And uh, so he brings up some some interesting points. So first of all, Israel never goes and marries another. We don't have any contract. There's nowhere in history that we see Israel making some kind of co- covenant relationship with idols. And that's not the way that the Scripture des- describes it either, right? It doesn't say that, that Israel goes and marries uh, other gods. She goes and whores with them. A whore doesn't marry everyone that she, that she uh, uh, you know, is... Uh, is doing wrong things with. She didn't come into covenant relationships. No, and another way to think of that is that there's nowhere in the Torah that Israel that says that the woman who is sent away can't return. Right, exactly. Initially. It's only that it's the subsequent clause and she becomes another's wife. Exactly. Right? So and and I want to go on with she can't go back. Right. I want to go on with what Jessica says. She said because this is a great this is a great outline of of how uh, people understand this and and honestly how it was presented to me. So God dies, releasing him and her, and then comes alive again because he's new. This is wrong all throughout Scripture. God does not become new. God makes Israel new. Right. We're the ones that knew. We're are the new. ones that are transformed. We're transformed from from those who go after idols into right. those who are drawn to Christ and regenerated, made new, new man, new person, new in Christ, right? We're new all the way around. And this how is are... back to back to Romans 7.1. He says, you know, do you not know? Um, I, I'm speaking to those who know the Torah, that the Torah has a, a jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That's the point. 
that that's a tr- fundamental truth. The Torah has jurisdiction over you as long as you're alive. And if you're convicted as a sinner before the Torah, you've got a problem because there's a penalty for that. Right. And you have that person that is guilty has to die. And the point is that in Yeshua, through substitutionary atonement, he has paid a debt and I have for me and I have died through him, even though this flesh and blood body wasn't even alive when he did this for me. And even though this flesh and blood body is still breathing, the legal legal standing before the Torah is that my my sin debt is paid. That person has died, and therefore there's no standing that the the right. law that held me as a sinner no longer the 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 overarching umbrella of the Torah is still there, but but the obligation to death is not there anymore. Yeah, the payments were paid, and and then the flip side is true: the blessing of obedience that Yeshua enjoys forever, he also shares with us. And so we have the blessing of the Torah, which is eternal life. That's the transaction that happens. That's why Romans 8.1 or 8.2 is so important. The law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has freed you from the law of sin and death. It's the Torah, but you're not under, you've been, you've transitioned from being under the curse of the Torah and death and sin and darkness. That problem between you and God has been solved and you're now abiding in the blessing. Why? Not because anything you did, but because Yeshua fulfilled the, the, the legal requirement. So um, there's so much beautiful theology here. And if we will miss that, if we get steer, if we allow ourselves in Romans seven to get steered into thinking that somehow um, God had to do the dying God, yes, okay, to pay for the sin, but not. But we're the ones that need to be new, right? God doesn't change. That's that's the point. So, uh, same and, today, and yesterday, today, and forever. Joshua makes a great point. Uh, asks a great question in the uh, in the chat room. He says, "Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but is Christ dying by taking on our sin, the infidelity, to bring Israel back into covenant with Him? Wrong. No, the point is, is that He dies to make us new." It's that we die to ourself. And he, this is the, he basically this is the, teaches us how to die. We yeah, and we and this and then is the we picture. have the Torah written on our heart. It's Jeremiah thirty one. It's it's and it's and it's being born again, John three, right? And it's forgiveness of sins. Right. I will, being born I will for, forgive their sins, I will not remember you know, remember their iniquities no more, etc. I'll write my Torah on their hearts. That is a new new creation. Exactly. New birth, yes. resurrection. Those are the different metaphors um and it's not just israel as a nation right right it, well it's, the it's jew and gentile it's, it's, it's israel opening up back to the romans 11 <clears throat> and without faith you're not part of the tree right because the core just the being on the tree means you're justified right and the only way you could be justified is the same way our father abraham was justified which is by faith it's not a work. It's right. a gift. It's a gift. Lest any man should boast. The reason any of us are justified is never a leverage over against somebody else that we're right. better. Right. Somehow we're positioned better before God than someone else. 
If we have any inkling of that, that's bad theology, and we need to eradicate that from our heart you know, somebody, by somebody, the Holy Spirit. Somebody said to me, this is several months ago, they said, you're such a hypocrite. You're just such a hypocrite. You know, you... You 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 uh, you say that that uh, that that we should follow Christ and all these things, but but what about you? Aren't you a sinner? <laughs> and my response was absolutely. I am no better than you. I don't think I'm better than you. I'm a sinner, probably worse than you. The difference is, and I mean, this came from. This was a very difficult conversation because it came from a rebuke that I had to give to, to to someone. And my response was, yes. The difference is, is that the Lord has, has, I've given my life. In other words, my life is no longer mine. I'm being conformed. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. And I'm not, certainly but my you're, life. you're trusting Yeshua is doing the building. Yeah. And not only that, but, but I can see and... And other people can see as well, you know, my wife and, and I, we were working together to conform to Christ as a unit. So this is, you know, it's the continual sanctification. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. And I know I'm not. But we continually every day try to die to self. And this is, Paul talks about this, right? Um, if, if you're a believer, uh, I mean, and you say that you're not a sinner, then you got bigger problems. Yeah, so, then then you're not in the new covenant. That's evident right. that, that you don't understand the new covenant. Because in First John it says, if we say we have no sin, it says the truth is not in us. His word is not in us. Well, the only way his word is in you is through the new the terms of the new covenant. There's no other way to have the Torah on the heart um, except through the reality of of what Yeshua's work is. On our behalf. So I want to go back to Joshua real quick. And, you know, we haven't even touched on, I don't know if it's, it might be hard to get back into this conversation next week because we've touched on a lot of it, but we'll come back around to it. We can come back around to it. Um, I want to touch real quick uh, on, on the lecture that we were talking about. I do want to talk about some of his endpoints before we leave. Um, But Joshua says, I hope that I did not come across, come as an attack. Not at all. You know, sometimes when we're talking, a lot of people think that we get excited and, and that we're attacking. This is, I mean, no, I think that was a great question. I agree. It was our sin that separated us and that that needed to be dealt with in order to bring us back. I also was referring to Israel as believers. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to attack you either. I'm, these are, these are great questions and things that we're all trying to understand better, wrestle with, um, I I think and Yates is uh, yeah Gary Yates right uh, Gary Yates's lecture was was really a very good one he 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 kind of opened my eyes to some of the things that I hadn't thought about before um, and so this idea of God made us new not that He has to die and be new uh, so I, these are the two the I three three notes that I wrote down during that um, during the lecture as I was listening to it Yates suggests that Israel is not able to return. Not because she married another, which she is not, but rather because she is engaging in continued whoring. Right. And exactly. his point to this is, where is the divorce certificate? In other words, uh, he he clearly gave Israel a covenant of a covenant, a land covenant, right? That that is supposed to be seen uh, in the imagery of the prophets as the marriage certificate, right? So the covenant is the marriage certificate, and um, so Yates's point is okay. If the if the marriage covenant is so clearly seen and given, and we can hold it and see it, 
where's the divorce certificate? We can't see it anywhere. And then Yates also knows that the biggest difference between the regulations in Deuteronomy 24 and God in Israel is that God's new bride is just that, new. God has the ability to change Israel into a new person. And what Yates suggests is that the language itself um, suggests that that the prophets are not actually saying that God literally divorced Israel, but rather they're using this as metaphor of of Israel needing to return and return to, to and, God. And uh, it's like a teaching moment. It's leveraging God's l- law, written justice, right, <laughs> as a prod to repentance. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, so, so yeah, there's good, a lot of good stuff. Okay, um, I think that uh, this and, is... And been... when we, just one more point on the metaphor. Please. We'll find Israel as God's son, Israel as a wayward woman, Israel as a thief, right? Is right. All the prophets draw on these different kinds of Torah themes, and obviously, it can't be both true literally that Israel is God's wife and God's son, right? We we can't literally. So we have to say that's why we use the word metaphor. He's u- he's using God's express justice. The prophets are to demonstrate God's enduring covenant loyalty and the severity of that he's serious, the severity of, of, of the crimes, the severity of, of the, uh, the rebellion, the transgression, the worship of other gods, etc. Yeah, so, so I, I want to just emphasize one more time, and I, we can, yeah. Uh, in Jeremiah 3, 4, he's using multiple, multiple metaphors, right? And you touched on this, Rob, but I think we should, should maybe emphasize it is that in Jeremiah 3, 4, he uses the metaphor of father father and son, right? My father, you are... Uh, ha, have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be ind- indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken... So in other words, he's using these metaphors to try to say, look, return. So I, I, I'm... I think, you know, obviously, once we get down to eight, once again, I think that he's using this metaphor. And uh, I would encourage uh, people to contact, you know, if, you, if you're interested in, in uh, Dr. Gary Yates' uh, uh, lecture, you might be able to contact him and, and see if he, or see if he's on, uh, I haven't seen if he's on academia.com, but, uh, you know, he might make his, his notes on this lecture might be available somewhere, um, or he might, might have written an article on this. Now, the big clincher is going to come in, what is it, 3.8? She saw for, uh, yeah, so, uh, she saw that for all the adulteries of the faithful one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her uh, wh- whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with sto- stone and tree. Um, so... Yeah, and this is something that I think we need to uh, talk about more and something that we'll talk about in future shows to come. Well, yeah, and in in, Gen- in uh, Jeremiah 3, there's wordplay going on as well. Like at the beginning, it talks about uh, re'im rabim, which is many companions or many lovers. But then later in verse, a couple of verses later, he says, I will give you, I will give you ro'im, right. shepherds after my heart. In other words, and in, in Hebrew, it's spelled the same way, resh, ayin, yod, mem. 
the vocalization is different. And then the verb ra is used for the evil that Israel was doing or Judah was doing. But then the new shepherds, it says ra'u, they will tend my sheep. They will feed, you know, pasture my people. So there's so many layers of meaning that, that the prophet is drawing from to make this just a, a wallop of a rebuke. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And because because God's heart is repentance for His people. Obviously, I mean that's the the, the prophets are. What are the prophets doing except calling Israel to abandon idolatry and come back to the covenant? Right. right? I mean that's that's what it is. Um. So. Okay. Well, I hope that this this conversation. I've enjoyed this conversation. I always enjoy. Uh, you know, these kind of. It's always fun to get on and and talk about these kind of issues, especially issues that. Um, are somewhat controversial. You know, I know a lot of people in the Hebrew roots and messianic uh, movement believe this theology that uh, you know that we've laid out, and uh, uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I'm. Uh, it's certainly not something that's uh, a central doctrine that that uh, you know is is a what do they call them in, in mainstream Christianity? Uh, I forget. Anyway, a central doctrine. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, if you want to be a part of the conversation, please be a part of the conversation. 253-465-3205. Let us know what you think and, and uh, where you think we're wrong, we're right, whatever it is. Let us know. 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chag at com. That's chag at com. And, of course, don't forget, sign up for classes at com right now. Um, you have less than a week to do so. And so I would encourage you to go and uh, sign up for classes. Take a class with Rob. Studies in the Torah. It's going on right now. Our brothers and sisters, we hope that this show did one thing, which is uh, glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.